Do you ever wish that everything you did succeeded? That everything you touched turned to gold? That the wind was always at your back, the tide was always in your favor, the tables were always turned in your direction? That every endeavor that you put your hand upon was without any opposition at all, and that no matter what you did, it was met with absolute approval from everyone. How would you feel if that was your life? And second question, how long would it last? We're studying the portion of David's life here where he's experiencing the fruitfulness of his purpose and God's plan for his life. We see that God has established his throne and his kingdom, that he's given him favor with all of the people in the nation. Everything he does is prospering. The Bible says that God is preserving David wherever he went and that his list of enemies is growing smaller while Israel's borders are growing larger. And for David, life is good in Israel. The problem is that no matter how sanctified or well-trained a person is, as long as there's a sin nature inside, absolute success is always going to be a breeding ground for corruption of whatever kind might present itself or grow. In Psalm chapter 119, verse 67, the author says these profound words. He says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I have kept your word. The idea is this, is that a life that's free of affliction, where everything always succeeds and always goes in your direction, leads to a wandering away from God, which always leads to danger and perdition. Tonight what we're going to see in this very successful king is the cause, the power, and the effects of sin in the lives of God's people. And it begins in chapter 10. And so you're there in your Bible. We're flying over so we won't read line by line, but we'll highlight and then apply. What we see in this chapter is that David, who's been established now, is on the throne. And a foreign king, a king of Ammon, who is was the king of Jordan, an area that was uh, on the east side of Israel across the, dead, uh, the Jordan River and then down south a little in, in, uh, over by the Dead Sea. Nahash, the king of Ammon, has died, and his son Hanan has taken over for him. And apparently at some point while David was a refugee running from King Saul, uh, Nahash had shown some form of kindness to David. And so when Nahash dies, David desires to do something nice for his son who's taken over for him. And so he sends an emissary of people from his kingdom, a delegation, to bring gifts and to bring consolation and and sympathy to Hanan because of the loss of his father. Well, they come there and they offer these gifts and this sympathy, but the counselors of Hanan, his cabinet, the people that were around him, they had suspicions about the sincerity of David's motives. And so they say, don't think, don't be deceived into thinking that David is concerned about you and that he's just sending condolences, but rather he's sending spies and he's making plans to invade. And so Hanan listens to the counsel of his uh, governors and he takes these men that David had sent and he shaves off half their beard, which was probably one of the greatest insults you could cast upon a Jewish man in that society in that time. And then he cut out the buttocks of their clothing. And so half the beard, the buttocks of the clothing, and they were sent back to Israel humbled with their tails exposed or tucked, you know, whatever you want to say. But they go back ashamed. And David gets word of it, and David is incensed. He's angry at what these guys have done uh, to his men. And so he tells the men, stay at Jericho until your beards are grown. And then he calls for Joab. And he says, Joab, I want you to get all the mighty men, the chief captains, the armies together. And I want you to go and put the battle in array. And I want you to go and avenge the honor of these men. Now we are going to go in uh, in in this way. And so Joab gathers all of the, the, the armies of Israel. And they go into the region of Ammon. But the Ammonites hired Syrian mercenaries. Now, Syria was the territory north of Israel, still is today, and they hired four contingencies from the area of Syria to help them. And so these uh, guys from Syria 
follow at a distance the men of Israel. They go down to the region of Ammon and they come in from behind like an ambush. So in front of the Israelites, you have the army of the Ammonites. And behind the Israelites, you have the army of the Syrians. And so Joab sees this and he panics just a little bit. He goes, oh my, we're outnumbered, we're in over our heads, there's more of them than there are of us. But he comes up with a plan. And he says to his brother Abishai, who was one of his uh, right-hand men there in the uh, the army, the leaders, he said, I'm going to take the seals and, uh, you you know, the the, the special forces, I'm going to take the choice men, and I'm going to turn around and fight against the Syrians that are behind us. And you take the rest of the people and you go and fight against the Ammonites in the the gate of the city. And if the Syrians are too hard for me, then you send more men to help me. And if the Ammonites are too hard for you, then I'll send more men to come and help you. And so they make the agreement. They go into the battle. And the Bible says that the Syrians fled before Joab and his men. They They saw Joab coming. They were panicked and they took off. And that when the Ammonites saw the fear in the Syrians, they did likewise. They saw, oh my, the Syrians are abandoning ship. They don't think they can win. And it took the heart out of them. And so they also uh, then turned around. And, and there was really no fight that day. The Ammonites went home to their place. The Syrians went home to that place. And then Joab went home uh, to, to his place. And that um, is kind of how it happens. However, the Syrians are upset that they were smitten before the Israelites. They were humbled. And so what they do now is they don't take four contingencies, but they gather all of their fighting men from their whole country, the king included. And they form a battle line and they come down. And David hears word about it and he gathers not just the fighting men, Joab and his guys, but he gathers all of Israel as well and there's a war. And nearly 50,000 men die that day of the Syrians, none of the Israelites. And from that point on, the Syrians never helped the Ammonites again. And the Syrians were at peace, at least by treaty with Israel. And so were the Ammonites because of it. And so we see David prospering, David uh, continuing to, to subdue his enemies, increase his borders, and things are succeeding for him in his kingdom. Now, there's a lot going on in this chapter, and there's many things for us uh, to see here. But uh, by way of application, as we get into this and we see the first crack in David's spiritual armor, so to speak, come in this chapter. But uh, before we talk about that, the first thing that we have to consider for ourselves in this chapter is this, is beware of the temptation to judge someone's motives or intentions. Now, we live in a world today where we are taught to look behind every action, to search out every motive, and to find the scandal in everything. That's kind of the way the world is wired these days. I mean, there are people who their whole job is to just listen to a speech or to analyze a conversation and try to figure out what's really going on under the surface. And that has kind of become the way that we operate with one another. We're always looking for the self behind the action. Why are they doing? Why are they saying? What are they doing? And I understand that there's kind of a safety um, factor in that because we want to protect ourselves. We've all been burned. We've all been uh, cheated or mocked or in some way taken advantage of. And we don't like that. I, I know I don't like that. But the problem with living that way, always judging people's intentions instead of just looking at it in face value, is that first of all, you lose the ability to enjoy people. Because everyone is, 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 is just out to get you. Everyone is a piece of garbage. And uh, it's impossible to even have Christian fellowship or Christian love with someone like that. It's impossible to have friendships, and it's a road that leads to total isolation. You will put yourself into a little room where your world is very small. It's just the four walls of your room, and nobody's going to get inside of that because you just can't trust anyone in this whole thing. I love my wife uh, for this because I, I have the tendency, I'm a very analytical person. I think a lot of men are. And so I have a tendency to look behind and try to figure out, like, what's going on and try to maybe have the upper hand in something just by knowing the, the, the fullness of the situation. And Georgia is so good at bringing me back down to earth because when I'll ask her or talk to her about certain things, she'll just say to me, she'll say, why do you feel like you want to crawl around in someone else's thoughts? And I always just kind of feel rebuked and I half smile and I say, yeah, yeah, I know, I know you're right, you know. But there's something so true about there's a peace in just taking things at face value 
for what they are. We see 50,000 people die in this narrative, and it all started from the fact that they misjudged a motive that David had. His intentions aren't sincere. And so therefore there's a war, 50,000 people die. Now, that aside, this battle was going to happen. Whether it happened because of David's misinterpreted act of kindness, or whether it would be something that would happen in the future, these were Israel's enemies, and at some point the battle was going to happen. And so by further way of application, it's worthy of noticing in this chapter You need to see it is that the people of God are always more than conquerors. We get the idea that Joab here was outnumbered. He was taken by surprise when the ambush came in from behind. And he was even faced with the fear that they were in danger and in over their head. Yet, isn't it interesting that once the battle began, they didn't even have to fight. They never had to raise the sword against anyone at all. The Syrians fled back to Syria, and the Ammonites fled back to Ammon, and they didn't lose. Now, the battle is the Lord's. It always is with the people of God. But they still had to do a couple of things. They had to go. They had to plan. They had to have courage, which Joab says an incredible thing in the narrative to his brother. He says, look, we're going to do this. You go against them. I'm going to go against the Syrians. And he said this. He said, play the men. Play the man before the troops. Don't let fear come into your face, even if you're afraid. That's what Joab said to, to his men. He said, play the men and, and, and don't lose courage. Don't lose heart. They need to see it. And if God is going to have us defeated, let God have his way. And it was just a real act of courage there. So they had to have courage and they had to fight. They had to go into it and be willing to go. And they did it. Same thing is true for for us, for you and for me. There are times that we have enemies. We have the world that is against us, the flesh, that enemy from within, and the devil who's always seeking in some way, if he can, like a lion, to take us out in whatever capacity it is. The Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. That there is nothing that can be formed against us that can take us out. God is with us in all things. But we have to be willing to stand up in the battle. That's what Ephesians chapter 6 is all about, the spiritual warfare. Paul said, take unto you the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. So take the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth and let your feet be shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And take the sword of the Spirit. And through all prayer. And so he lists this armor that we have. This weapons cachet of the believer. And he calls us to stand. There's times that we have to stand. We have battles that we have to face as Christians. You may right now be facing something in your life. There's a confrontation on the horizon. There's someone in your life that there's something coming. Whether it's a discussion that you have to have. Or a debate that there might be. Or they might disapprove of the way that you're living your life in Jesus Christ. And you're worried about it. You're saying, I'm not sure if I can handle this. Will I have the answers? Will I know they're so much stronger than me? They've always defeated me in the past and everything. Listen, you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ. But you must have the courage to stand up, to take the whole armor of God, and to believe Him at His word that He is able to make you stand. There may be a call upon your life to share the gospel with someone and you're fearful of that act of going into that situation and sharing something that is so offensive in today's society. The Bible says you are more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ and if you step out in faith, God will stand with you and he will make you to prosper in your endeavor and what he's calling you to do. We are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ. One more thing worthy of mentioning in this chapter is that this is the first time that David sends Joab but he doesn't go himself. And that's going to become paramount to what happens as we come into chapter 11. So chapter 11 as we move forward here. Now, I am going to summarize, as I've been doing, three chapters now, 11, 12, and 13, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to apply it because it's a total package. We're not going to break it up into soap opera segments here. You get the whole thing all at once and then we'll apply it to our lives and we'll see that it's very applicable to us in these days. This is one of the saddest, darkest, and most sobering chapters in all of the Bible that we have. 2 Samuel chapter 11. Verse 1 tells us that the time frame was during the first part of the battle that took place in the last chapter. 
But it was when Joab was sent to go and fight against the Ammonites. But it says it was the time of year that kings go forth to battle, but that David stayed at home. And it tells us that he was on the housetop at evening, that he arose from his bed. So we get the idea that he was sleeping in the daytime. And he sees a woman while he's walking upon the rooftop of his house. And she's bathing herself with an eyesight of the palace roof. And David is attracted to her. The Bible says that she was a very beautiful woman. And that David inquired. He asked. He said, who is that woman that lives, you know, I mean, I think I've seen her once or twice. You know, she lives kind of, I'm not exactly sure where, where she lives. Somewhere in the palace vicinity, real attractive. You know, Anybody know who that? Oh, yeah, we know exactly who that is, they say. Her name is Bathsheba, and she is the son of one of your chief counselors, or the granddaughter of Ahithophel, who is uh, David's chief of intelligence. You know, she's actually uh, related to someone who, who uh, you know, is, is in your committee, your, your cabinet. And, oh, she's married too, David. She's the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Oh, and by the way, David, her husband works for you. So she's related to one of your chief staff members. She's married and her husband works for you. He's on your payroll. In fact, he's a valiant man. Oh, all good reasons for David to say, well, you know, I probably should stay away from, from this. Maybe she likes coffee. I, I'm just, I'll just see if, you know, maybe we could find some common ground. She's probably lonely. Her, her husband is off to battle. I'm in Jerusalem right now. We'll just get together and chat a little bit. And so he throws away the counsel of those who told them who she was. He gets close to this woman. She comes to him, and sure enough, they have an affair. David sleeps with her. The Bible says that she conceived. And she sent a message to David in those weeks following, and she said, Behold, I'm with child, and my husband's off to war with Joab and the men. David, it's yours. And so David goes into protection mode, damage control mode, panic mode, and he immediately sends for Uriah the Hittite from the battlefront to come back to Israel. Come, send Uriah to me. And so Uriah comes to David, and David chums it up with him. He rubs shoulders with Uriah. He says, hey, Uriah, how's things in the battle? How's Joab? How are the men? Everything good out there? So glad for what you're doing for Israel, fighting in the battle. I'll tell you what. Thanks for the intelligence report. Here's a bunch of meat and some wine. Go home and spend the night with your wife. Have a nice time. Wash your feet. Relax. And just enjoy life for the night. And then you can go back to the battle in the morning. Well, the Bible says that Uriah the Hittite didn't go into his house that night. He slept at the gate, the city gate, with the servants of David. And the next morning, David found out that Uriah didn't go home and sleep with his wife that night, a good cover-up for him. And he calls Uriah back and he says, Why didn't you go home? I sent you home for the night. And Uriah looked at David and said probably some of the heaviest words David would hear through this whole ordeal. He said, the ark of God is dwelling in tents. And Joab and the servants of the Lord are fighting in the battle. They're sleeping out in the field. How could I go home and sleep with my wife when that's going on outside there? That would be wrong, David, for me to do that. Tell you what, Uriah, hang out with me another day. And so David has a feast. David gets him drunk. David says, go home now and be with your wife. But Uriah doesn't. He goes back to the gate. He sleeps with the men. So David wakes up in the morning. The Bible tells us that David himself had been drunk. Probably his head still spinning a little bit from what he had done the night before. He writes a letter. It's penned to Joab. It's sealed. It's put into the hand of Uriah to bring to Joab himself. The letter says, Joab, I want you to put Uriah with a bunch of men and put him in a heated part of the battle and then withdraw from him so that he dies. Uriah is sent into the battle. He brings his own death letter back to the general Joab. And sure enough, Joab obeys the command. Uriah is withdrawn from. He is killed. He is smitten. And when the message is sent to David, Joab qualifies the account by saying, when David is angry that people died, make sure you tell him that Uriah is dead as well. And so the messenger comes. He delivers. He says, hey, some guys died tragically, but Uriah was also one of them. And David says, oh, you know, the sword devours one as well as the other. What are you going to do? Go back to the battle, encourage Joab. And it seems like everything is nicely covered up. He sends for Bathsheba. She comes to the palace. David takes her as his wife, which now is legal. Hey, her husband is dead. And the whole thing is neatly put away. A conspiracy that is sealed and covered. 
But the chapter ends by saying, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. A year and a half or a year to a year and a half passes. David writes psalms about what it was like for him to live through that time period of his life. He describes things like saying, my couch was filled with tears. My joy was departed from me. My tongue claved to the roof of my mouth. There was a dryness, a parchness in my soul. There was death that was living inside of me during that time. But a year and a half later, the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to him in chapter 12. And Nathan comes to David and he says, David, I have a judgment I need you to issue here. We have a a, a complicated situation in the kingdom. There was two men, a rich man and a poor man. The rich man had land, he had flocks, he had herds. He had a lot. He was abundantly rich. The poor man had nothing. He had one lamb, one lamb, and she was like a pet to the family. She would eat inside the house. She would drink out of his cup. She would even sleep in the man's bed. And the rich man had a guest come visit him from a far country, and he didn't want to kill one of his own sheep to feed the man who was visiting him, so he went to the poor man, stole his one lamb, and killed it, butchered it, and fed it to his guest the night of the feast. So what should I do? And it says that the anger of David was aroused within him and his judgment thundered out. He said, the man that has done this thing shall die because he stole what wasn't his and because he had no pity. And he's going to restore fourfold what he has done. So first he's going to pay back four times, then he's going to die. Now the law said he's going to repay four times. But the law did not say he should die for that. Nathan looked at David upon giving this harsh sentence God said, I'm sorry, Nathan said, David, you're the man. You have done this thing. And so then he begins to speak, and Nathan says, thus says the Lord. This is the message that God has for you in this. He says, this is what I've done for you. I've anointed you king over my people Israel. I've delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I've given you your master's house and your master's wives. I've given you the houses united of Israel and Judah. And if that hadn't been enough, I would have given you such and such things. David, I've done so much for you, and I would have done so much more had you asked. But this is what you've done, David, says the Lord. You've despised my commandment, and you've done evil by murdering Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and taking his wife to be your wife. And you've despised my commandment. Now, I counted, just in the act of taking Bathsheba and having Uriah murdered, five commandments of the ten that David broke. He stole a wife that wasn't his. He coveted a woman that was someone else's. He committed adultery with a woman that wasn't his wife. He killed a man with a foreigner's sword, and he lied and covered the whole thing up. He despised the commandment of the Lord. And God said, you killed Uriah, and that was first-degree murder. God said it wasn't something that happened in battle. It wasn't an accident, even though you gave the facts, yet lied through them. (coughs) You killed Uriah, and you took his wife, and then God said, this is what's going to now happen to you, David, because of this thing. He said, because you have done this, the sword will not depart from your house, but evil will rise up from within your own house and your walls. Your wives will be taken by a neighbor of yours, and though you took someone's wife secretly, your wives will be taken and ravished in the sight of this son. And God brings down his chastising sentence upon David's life. Well, upon this confrontation that Nathan brings to David, David repents. He says, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan immediately replies to David and says, the Lord has also put away your sin. And that is how God handles sin, by the way. No matter how bad the sin is, when we bring it to him in contrition and confession with repentance, God forgives our sin. And God forgave David's sin immediately. He said, your sin is put away. You shall not die. Now, what David did was a capital crime. He was guilty of murder one. He was also guilty of death through the adultery. The penalty for adultery was death. On two counts, David should be put to death. God spared that death sentence due to his repentance. However, the sentence of God the consequences of David's sin would still yet come to pass. And so Nathan said, not only will those other things take place, but the child that was born because of this relationship, that child is going to die. And here's why, David. Because by doing this, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. You have given an excuse for the enemies of God to say, see, they're hypocrites. 
The whole thing is a sham. All they are is imperialists. They don't care about a God at all. They just use that as a front to do whatever they want. And you've given this opportunity, David. I think that was probably the hardest thing for David to hear throughout the whole thing. That you've given occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme through this thing that you have done. Well, the chapter goes on. The child becomes sick. David fasts and prays for seven days, asks God to spare the life of the child, but then the child dies. David rises from the thing, but then the Bible says that David comforted Bathsheba, this new wife that he had had. He has another son by her, a child by the name of Solomon. And the Bible says right there that the Lord loved Solomon. God didn't throw David away. He didn't throw away the relationship. He wasn't through with David or Bathsheba, but he blessed the offspring of it. And isn't it interesting? We all know who Solomon is, don't we? He was the offspring, the one that would be the successor for King David, the one through whom the promise would be fulfilled that his kingdom will be established. God honored Solomon and Nathan so much. Nathan gave him a nickname, which was Jedediah, which is that the Lord loves him. And then we find at the end of the chapter that David experiences further victory in his life. And so God wasn't through with David, even though David had greatly sinned against him. Well, we get to chapter 13, and now we have all automatically, quickly, the immediate effects of David's sin. What we see in chapter 13 is that one of David's sons, in fact, it was his firstborn son, whose name was Amnon. He was the daughter of David's first, uh, one of David's first wives, Ahinoam. And we see that Amnon had a crush on his half-sister, Tamar. Now, Tamar was the daughter of a woman named Maaka, who was the daughter of the king of Geshur, or a foreign king. So that was a political marriage. And Maaka gave birth to Tamar. She also gave birth to Absalom who's going to become uh, critical in the story in just a few minutes. But it says that Amnon had a crush on Tamar. It says that she was extremely attractive and that he was lovesick, that he was so infatuated with her beauty that he couldn't even eat. Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, who also happened to be David's nephew. Starting to get crazy, right? It's like a reality show now. All of a sudden it's like, who's who? They're related to this? Cousins and aunts and uncles? Well, Jonadab sees the torture that Amnon is going through, and it says that he was a cunning man. He's actually a snake. And he comes to Amnon, and he says, Hey, you want your sister. You're the son of the king. You're in the royal family. You should be able to get what you want. Here's what you do. Pretend you're sick. Ask your father to send Tamar to help you, to minister to you. He'll do it. And when she's with you, take her. You're the king's son. Just do what you want. And so Amnon says, all right, that sounds like a plan. So he does it. He pretends he's sick. When David finds out, David comes to inquire, see how he's doing. He says, hey, could you send Tamar to feed me and just kind of take care of me a little bit? And David kind of wrinkles his brow a little bit, his discernment shot at this point. He says, all right, you want Tamar? Okay, sure. So he sends Tamar. Tamar comes. And once she's there, Amnon says, put everybody else out of the room, just me and her. And when she comes to the bedside, he won't take the food from her, but he says, come here, sister. And he grabs her by the arm and he says, lie with me. And she panics. She freaks out. And she says, no. And she, in verses 12 and 13 of that chapter, gives reason. She says, don't do this. This is folly. I'm your sister. You're my brother. This shouldn't be done. Your shame will never depart from you. My reproach will never depart from me. Don't do this thing, my brother. But it says that he was stronger than her. He overpowered her. He forced her. And as soon as it was over, it says that he hated her more The hatred that he had for her exceeded the love that he had felt for her previously as soon as it was over. And he said, get out. He pushed her out of the room. He asked his servant to lock the door behind her and send her away. She went away. She tore her colored robe, which was the honor of the king's virgin. She put ashes on her head and she fled to the house of her brother, her biological brother, Absalom, who immediately understood what happened. He said, were you with Amnon? And then he said, just shut your mouth. Don't bring problems it will all work out. And for two years, David finds out about it right away. He's angry, but he has no more authority to do anything about it because of what he did. And so he does nothing to correct Amnon, and two years pass. And after two years, Absalom has sheep to shear, and he asks David if the sons of the king can come and join him. David consents, though he questions. He says, why do you want Amnon there? And Absalom says, just let him come. And David says, all right. And so Amnon goes... 
Absalom commanded his servants. He said, listen, once Amnon is a little bit tipsy from the wine, I want you to kill him and don't be afraid. Just do what I told you. Amnon gets a little tipsy. Amnon gives the order. The servants kill Amnon and all the king's son flee. A messenger is sent to David. The messenger doesn't have the facts down and he tells David, all of your sons have been slain by Absalom. But guess who's there? Jonadab. Remember him? The guy with the real good advice, the nephew of David. And he says, ah, David, don't worry about it. It's not all your sons. It's just Amnon because of what he did to Tamar. <laughs> and sure enough, then another messenger comes and says, no, it's, or I'm sorry, all the sons of David come and they say, David, uh, you know, it were, they, he realizes that they're alive and it says that they wept there and that Absalom fled to Geshur or the place where his grandfather lived, that foreign king whose daughter had married David. So Absalom is off the scene. Amnon is dead. And the Bible says that uh, David mourned for Amnon, but yet he was comforted because of what he had done, for, you know, done to Tamar. And then it says that he was troubled because of what Absalom uh, had done in running away. And now Absalom is off the scene. And so you come to the end of chapter 13. And so, okay, so we have these three chapters. We have David's sin with Bathsheba in chapter 11. Then we have Nathan's rebuke and David's repentance in chapter 12. And then we have the immediate effects of David's sin, the sword in his family, by the time we get to chapter 13. So how do we, what do we take from this now as we look at the whole thing and we try to apply it to our lives? Sexual sin has great consequences. They're lasting, they're felt most in the family, and they will ruin the call of God in someone's life. Now, most of us already know this. I mean, we live in a sex-saturated society. And we see the effects of what it does to people, what it does to families, to marriages, to, to a whole society. I think that if right now I were to ask you by show of hands, and I'm not asking by show of hands, don't lift your hand here. But if I were to ask you right now, how many people in this room in some way in their past, have been affected either directly or indirectly by sexual sin, whether it's yours or someone else's, raise your hand. I think probably almost every hand in here would go up. And then if I said, how many people in here by show of hands are currently in some way affected by sexual sin, whether it's yours or somebody else's? I think probably almost every hand uh, in here would probably go up. And if I asked in here, how many of you in here by show of hands feel the temptation of sexual sin hitting your life in some capacity at some point throughout your wanderings through this world. I think probably in here, every hand, uh, most hands would go up as we talk about those things. Here's the statistics. I just heard these things today and it's just a few. Is that the fastest growing bracket of porn users in the United States of America is those that are ages 11 to 13. And that one in three of those is female. Nearly half of all kindergartners right now in the United States of America have some form of mobile device. <laughs> Think about that for a minute. I mean, whether it's, you know, an iPod touch or whether it's their own cell phone or they have access to their parents' phone, uh, nearly half of them, and it is believed that of them, half of them have in some way been exposed to some pornographic image uh, indirectly, you know, unintentionally uh, because of those things. Now, in preparing for this message and going through these things, I started to follow the chain of compromise in how David got to this point. You know, this man who had done so well and been so mightily used and brought up, how did he get here? And I found myself, as I'm doing that, getting a little bit frustrated inside. Because as I'm following the chain, okay, he took more wives than he was supposed to. He should have been out at war when all the kings were at war. I'm going through all these things. I'm starting inside to feel a little bit of frustration. And, and, I'm, and I'm going to myself, what, what am I doing here? What's going on here? And, you know, and, 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 and for a while, I just put everything down for a minute. And I just said, wait, wait a minute. If David who loved of God, who loved God, who wrote the Psalms. I couldn't write the Psalms. If David, who had it in his heart to build a temple for the Lord, who put $100 million of his own money out there to do it, he loved God with all of his heart. And if David couldn't stand against it, what hope do I have? How in the world can someone stand in a society like we live in against these things? And I took the paper and I did one of these. And I go, 
We don't need to know how it happened. We know how it happened because we all feel the effects of that coming at our lives constantly. It's like when you go to the doctor and he tells you that you have high cholesterol and then he gives you a list of all the things that cause high cholesterol. You say, I already know that, you know, bacon and, you know, I'm not supposed to eat these things. I know what causes it. How do I fix it? And, and I think that's the greater question that we face as we look at this and consider it in light of where we live today. It's not what causes it. We know what causes it. How can we not be among the number of those whose lives are destroyed by it? How do we do that? We studied Samson not too long ago. We saw a man with an incredible potential and call of God upon his life, and he wasn't able to stand against it. Now we see David, a man with incredible potential, love for God. He wasn't able to stand against it. His son Solomon, who's going to be the glory of Israel, he's going to make the economy so good that silver will be esteemed as rocks. He is not able to stand against it. So if Samson can, if David can, if Solomon can, is there anyone in the Bible that we can look at that could that we could look at their life and say, God, can you do these things in me that I don't end up where David ended up? That the sword doesn't have to be in my family. That I don't have to watch this destructive whirlwind tear through my life and into future generations in me. Is there a place for me to stand? And thankfully, the answer is yes. There is a place for us. I asked you to turn to Genesis chapter 39. There is a man who stood against it And his life testifies for us that you and I can stand against it as well. He was 17 years old. He was taken from his father's house and from the presence of his brothers. He was sold as a slave in a foreign land. All he had was a background with Jacob, his father, a little bit of education as to who the God of Israel was, and a promise that God was someday going to use his life. Now he finds himself isolated without a Bible, without a Sunday school teacher, without a pastor, without Christian fellowship, without accountability partners, without anyone to talk to about the things that he's struggling with. At the age of 17, he's brought into the house of a man named Potiphar and he's favored by God there. God raises him up. Potiphar loves this man, Joseph. Everything Joseph does prospers and so Potiphar puts everything into Joseph's hand. And I mean, think about it. There are any 17-year-olds here right now 17-year-old man who's put in charge of a whole estate and trusted, and everything prospers. But the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 39, verse 7, it says, It came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. Now, there is no greater temptation that exists in all of the world than for a beautiful Egyptian mistress to proposition a 17-year-old male who's in the prime of that drive in his life. But yet it happens here. I want you to notice Joseph's response, verse 8. It says, but he refused. And he said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master knows not what is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand, and there is none greater in this house than I. Neither has he kept back anything from me but you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass as she spoke to Joseph day by day that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business and there was none of the men in the house therein. And she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and he fled and got him We see a man who defeats this temptation gloriously. How did he do it? There's five things for you to consider. And this is extremely relevant for every single one of us, no matter what stage of life we're in. How did Joseph defeat the power of this temptation within his life? Five things for you to consider quickly. Number one is that he rehearsed the consequences of the sin before the temptation came. He was able to give on the fly, in the moment of that temptation, five reasons why he shouldn't uh, do this thing. He says to her there, he says, my master doesn't, you're his wife. He doesn't know what's in the house. He's committed everything into my hand. There's none greater in this house than I. He hasn't kept anything back from me but you because you're his wife. And how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And in there, there are five reasons that he says audibly to her why he should not do this sin. Now, why is that so remarkable? Here's why. Because that is absolutely impossible to do in the moment that temptation comes. 
There is something physiologically that happens in the human brain when it is sexually aroused that it does not have the ability to reason properly. Case in point, David. Hey, anybody know who that woman is? Yeah, David. She's the granddaughter of your chief counselor. She's married and her husband works for you. Oh, could you send for her, please? Listen, listen, that's somebody's daughter. That's somebody's wife. You just sent a delegation to a pagan king because his dad died, and now you're going to steal a man's wife and kill him? There's something not right in here. It's twisted. We saw the same thing with Amnon. Tamar gave 10 reasons. You look at verses 12 and 13 back there in, 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 in Samuel and listen to the 10 reasons that Tamar gives why Amnon shouldn't rape her that day. It says that she answered him, no. That's reason number one. She said, no. You're my brother. That's reason number two. That's gross. Do not force me. This is rape. That's reason number three. For no such thing ought to be done in Israel. We're the people of God. This is sin. That's reason number four. Do not do this folly. This is foolishness. You're acting like a clown. That's reason number five. And I, that's reason number six. I'm a real person. Look what you're going to do to me. Where shall I cause my shame to go? I'm never going to recover from this. That's reason number seven. As for you, your life, you're a real person. That's reason number eight. You shall be as one of the fools in Israel. That's rule number nine, or reason number nine. You're going to be an idiot for the rest of your life. And then finally, reason number 10. Now, therefore, I pray thee, speak to the king, for he will not withhold you from me. Reason number 10 is, why don't you ask David if he thinks this is okay, if he approves of this? It'd be like me saying to you, hey, you want to sin? Would you do that if Jesus was here? (laughs) Does Jesus approve of that? Ten reasons... Tamar gives why Amnon shouldn't do it. But guess what? He didn't have the ability to make that kind of a rational decision because he had already allowed the temptation to grip him. He didn't rehearse beforehand the consequences of the sin. Now, if you don't frequently rehearse the consequences of sin in your mind before you get faced with that temptation, then you're never going to stand when that temptation comes especially when it comes to this type of thing, because it's too powerful of a temptation. You ask someone who's unfaithful to their wife or to their husband to make a list of all the reasons why they should, and then on the other column, all the reasons why they shouldn't. And all the reasons why they shouldn't, that could fill a page or two or three or four, and the reasons why they should is one or two things, because I want to, because it feels good, because, and then you run out. But yet, the rational mind can't process and make the right decision in that moment of temptation. Joseph rehearsed the, temp- the consequences before. Reason number, or, or, or method number two that Joseph employs is that he said no. Now, I know that sounds cliche, it sounds simplistic, but it's more than just saying no, because it says that he said no every day. It says that when she came to him day by day and said, lie with me, he said no every day. Somebody has said one time, as one of those old, dead saints from generations ago, he said that a life of holiness requires that you say no to your flesh 10,000 times a day. Now think about Joseph. He had one front of temptation coming at him. It was just Potiphar's wife. What about you and me? Every time we open up a periodical or a magazine, you drive down Route 9 or Route 55 and you see the billboards on the side of the road. Every time you turn the TV on and flip channels, every time you open up an internet web browser, every time you open up your mailbox and just look at an advertising that's given to you, you are faced with the temptation that Joseph faced just when Potiphar's wife came. And that requires that you and I say no 10,000 times a day. That every time that image comes into your mind that we say no. That every time we see something before our eyes, we say no. That every time the temptation comes into our hearts to think about a past experience that we had that arouses us in some way, we've got to say no. And here's why that's critical. Is that the reason David couldn't say no when faced with great temptation is because of how often he said yes to small temptation. David, don't multiply wives when you become a king. Well, what's the big deal? Nobody nobody really cares. That's what kings do. He said yes. You don't need any more wives, David. You've got a lot of them. He said yes. Somewhere, David got ten concubines that later will be taken by Absalom, his son. That means he said yes. 
See, he said yes in all of the little things. And what that meant is that he wasn't able to say no when he was faced with the big thing. And the same thing is true for you and me. If you don't say no when the little thing comes, when the thought is there to entertain or the picture is there to look at and you don't say no then, you lose your ability to resist when the big temptation comes. Joseph said no. Number three, Joseph created boundaries to distance himself from being around what would tempt him. It says that he refused to be in the house when she was in the house to be with her at all. He didn't want to be in her presence. He wouldn't put himself in the presence of what would be a temptation to him. He saw that as essential. I mean, Joseph wasn't holier than thou. He struggled with the feeling of it. There was something inside of him. I could get away with this. No one would ever know. It would never even come back. It, would be, it, it could be done and I could get away with it. But he said, no, I can't do that. And so he created the, the barrier between himself and the temptation. Uh, I have so much more to say, and I see that the clock is doing one of those fan jobs on me tonight where it's moving really quick, you know. Number four is that he saw his sin, or he saw sin as great wickedness before God. He didn't just look at the natural consequences. And this is a key, I think. It wasn't just the natural consequences that bothered Joseph of what it would do in costing him his position or his credibility or his future. None of that bothered him as much. But he was afraid of offending the Lord. And that's, I think, the missing ingredient in a lot of uh, sin fighting today as we seek to fight against sin, is that we, we do care about the consequences. We don't want to face the losing of our family or the hurting of our wives or our children or whatever else it might be. What about God? What about the fact that all that he's done for us like he said to David, David, I, I brought you from the sheepfold. I put you in the palace. I've given you the houses of Israel. I've done so many things for you. And if it hadn't been enough, I would have done so much more. But you've despised my commandment. You've put my will and treaded underfoot of your lusts. And you've given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme because of it. Does that affect us at all? It did for Joseph. And then number five, he ran. She grabbed him by the garment. She said, lie with me. And he said, I'm out of here. And he, even to the point where he left the garment in her hand, and it says that he got him out. Twice in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says the solution to victory when it comes to sexual sin is flee. To the Corinthians, he said, flee fornication. Don't think about it. Don't ask questions. Don't entertain it. Get away. And to Timothy, he said, flee youthful lusts, which war against the soul. When all else fails, get out. It's powerful. And it's destructive. And we see it, what it does in David's life. He will never be the same man again after what he goes through in this thing. Listen, you don't have to fall. We don't have to fall in the way that we've seen so many fall in this thing. But you do have to swim upstream. We talk about that all the time. In fact, I was walking in the room tonight, and I saw someone here has it on their shirt, on the back of their shirt. It says, it takes what? Uh, any dead fish can uh, go with the flow, but it takes a living one to swim upstream. And if you and I are going to stand victorious in this generation, in this area, in this arena, then it is going to require that we go against the flow. You have to say no 10,000 times a day. You've got to face head-on the fight that it takes to go uh, into these things uh, and whatever. Okay, we're out of time. And uh, if you're in sexual sin tonight, I have two things to say to you, and then, and then we'll close. Number one, what you do if you're in that place right now is that you confess it now. That's, that's what you do with sexual sin. And here's why. is because it will come out. What you're doing or what you're playing with, even if it's just in your mind, if it's in the early stages, it will come out. Numbers chapter 32 verse 23 says, be sure and know that your sin will find you out. You might be able to run faster than your sin right now, but sin can run forever and you cannot. And it will eventually catch you. And I guarantee you this, is that if you let it fester and grow if you continue to try to cover it up like David did when he had many opportunities to expose himself and minimize the damage, then the damage it will do to you will be way worse if you wait till that time than if you just deal with it now. When you confess, the Bible says that there is cleansing. 
He cleanses you. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says that if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. The word cleanse means catheterize, to cut off the power of that sin within our lives. And He has the power to do that when, uh, when we confess. The Bible says this. It says, Proverbs 14, verse 9. It says, Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Think about that for a minute. The bosom is the deepest part of the heart that no one else can see. And that's where sexual sin, that's where all sin starts. It starts in the secret place where no one else can see. But he says, if you take fire to your bosom, your clothes will be burned. What are the clothes? It's the outermost part that everyone can see. And if you let that fire burn, if there is even the smallest coal burning in there, simmering at all, it is only a matter of time before it consumes the whole thing and it is exposed for what it is just like it was with David. If that's you, confess it. Get it right. Whatever it's going to cost you now, it'll cost you less now than it will later. And listen, here's the good news. God's not finished with you yet. God's not shocked. He wasn't done with Samson. He wasn't done with David. He wasn't done with Solomon. There was consequences, and they were bad. And if you could ask David right now on the platform next to me, David, how would you have handled it the first time Uriah came to you? I guarantee you he would have said, I would have got it right then what it costs. And if you could go back even further, David, what would you have done when you sent Joab to the battle? He would say, I would have gone into the battle. And if you could ask Joseph, or I'm sorry, David, years before, David, what would you have done when you were going to take your 15th wife? He would say, I wouldn't have taken the 15th wife or the 14th or the concubines. Listen, God knows what he's talking about. He's extremely wise. His ways are always right. We can stand Uh, against this thing. We'll read ahead. We'll be in uh, the next chunk of chapters, beginning in chapter 14 uh, next week as we move forward uh, in this thing. Why don't we close in prayer and the worship team can come. Father, we thank you tonight for uh, your testimonies. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your counsel, Lord, that you give to us. And we pray, Father, that you would help us, Lord, in these most perilous times. We're faced with this on every front, Lord. Father, that we would see your hand of salvation at work within us. Lord, we ask that you'd raise us up and use us. We pray, Father, that we could be a pure and holy church. That we could be like a city that's set upon a hill. That we would have clean hands and a pure heart. Lord, that though the whole culture redefines what sin is, what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not, in a whole society that tries to tell us that God doesn't care, that God winks. Lord, you're seated upon your throne and your word is established in the heavens. You don't change. And so, Father, we pray tonight, Lord, that you would work your spirit into us. That the fear that this chapter is designed to instill in us, Lord, that it would instill. That that would be the beginning of wisdom. That we wouldn't have to see families shattered. We wouldn't have to see callings canceled. But Lord, that we'd be able to see souls saved, your kingdom expanded. Lord, that we would be that light to a lost and dying world. So teach us, O Lord. May we honor you in all that we do. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.